welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And are we using semicolons? I am the lone host on this episode today. This is Richard Littower calling in. Hello, this is Richard. Also Richard. Okay, that's enough about me. On to our guest. Today we have Nicholas Zekas. You may know Nicholas Zekas because he is the creator of a very popular JavaScript project. He made ESLint. He's an independent software engineer, consultant, and coach. ESLint is one of the main things he's done. It's been downloaded 13 million times each week. So it's used all over the world by JavaScript developers who are trying to make sure that the code they have written looks pretty good, has been linted properly. Nicholas is also the writer of numerous books, including Understanding ECMAScript 6, also known as JavaScript 6, Principles of Object-Oriented JavaScript, and Maintainable JavaScript. He has over 16 years web application development experience and has spoken at conferences around the world. And now he's focusing on mentoring and coaching the next generation of JavaScript engineers. Nicholas, I hope that bio wasn't too embarrassing. You are very important, but also how are you doing today? Well, thanks for having me. I'm doing good. Glad to be here and happy to be talking about open source. As am I, as always. So I actually want to know the origin story first. How did you start out as a developer? and How did that lead to you starting ESLint? The very beginning, I probably have to go back to middle school when I got my first Apple IIe clone because we couldn't actually (laughs) afford the regular Apple IIe. And my dad introduced me to BASIC. And I started just writing little programs, entertain myself, was pretty amazed at all that you could do by just writing some characters into the computer. And I just never gave up on it after that. I just kept building larger programs, made my way through Visual Basic, C++, and Java, and found JavaScript on my own, really, as I was investigating this new thing called the World Wide Web. And I didn't realize it at the time, but my whole career just basically ended up circling around JavaScript. And the more that I learned about it, the more I wrote about it, both with blog posts and books, the more I just fell in love with the language in general. And Eventually, that led me to create ESLint. So you fell in love with JavaScript. That's interesting to say as a linter, because linting is the act of changing what you've written to make it look like something else. So it seems like you fell in love with a subset of JavaScript. Am I misunderstanding something? No, I fell in love with all of it. All the warts, all the pimples, all the weird parts, because they all just told me a story. And I see ESLint as really, this will sound cheesy, as an act of love on your code, that we aren't trying to change what it does. We're just trying to nudge it in certain directions to be even better than you intended it to be. I like that answer. So ESLint, how many years has that been around? It's been around eight years now. Eight years used by millions of developers. How many people are working full-time on the project? Zero people are working full-time on the project. How do you keep yourself in funds? How do you feed yourself? Well, 
most of the people who are working on ESLint have regular full-time jobs and they work in their spare time to help out the project. Sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. It kind of depends on people's individual circumstances. We've found that people who have kids are looking for something to do after the kids go to bed. And so they'll get a lot of their contributions done late at night between the time that their kids go to bed and when they go to bed. And others are just squeezing in an hour here, an hour there. I myself don't have a full-time job, so I help out when I'm able to as well. And we just try to contribute what we can, when we can. That's pretty much how the project has been from the start. So one of the obvious questions I have is, why haven't you set up an OP collective or something and tried to rake in lots of money for the projects you can pay people? Or have you and has that not worked? We have, actually. So I think we've had our open collective set up for maybe two years, maybe three years at this point. So we do accept donations both through open collective and through GitHub sponsors. And the problem has been, it's really hard to raise enough money for somebody to live on. I live in Silicon Valley. If anybody is making less than say $120,000 a year working in software, they're probably not very good. And so if that is your starting point, where even folks who are just coming right out of college are getting 120 k each year, that means that's the minimum that you need to raise in order to hire someone full-time if they're in a major metropolitan area in the United States. And that's a lot of money. Yeah, And especially as companies donate $200 a month, $500 a month, $1,000 a month, that's a lot of companies that you have to sign up to even get to that point. And then after that, you're still only making the basic minimum of what most software engineers are making. And from the start, we realized that And just said, well, it's probably not realistic to get a full-time engineer working on ESLint. So given that, what can we do with the money that we're raising in order to ensure that the project continues, is maintained, and continues to add new features? And... We've gone through a bunch of different iterations, which I'm happy to go into more detail on. Um, But where we ended up is we're basically paying people by the hour. For most folks, again, who are working a full-time job already, that's just extra money in their pocket. And nobody is completely reliant on ESLint to pay for food and shelter. All right. And... I don't think this is for lack of trying. You have a blog post on your website, how to talk to your company about sponsoring an open source project where you talk about this thing, right? You say, this is how you should go to a company and say, give us money. So you clearly tried to get money, but you've run as a problem that pretty much every single open source project on GitHub sponsors on Open Collective has found. I know a few people who are making money off of open source through donations, 
but the vast majority are not. They're making them through contracting on the side or something else. So for the long tail of open source projects, which have some money, maybe enough to buy stickers, maybe a bit more. Can you tell us about what iterations you've gone through? So the very first thing that we tried was actually having somebody working part-time on ESLint because we figured if we could fund half of somebody's monthly expenses, then they would be free to spend the other half of their time making the other half on their own. That seemed like it might work. And so we had somebody on the team who was interested in trying that out. And we tried it for several months and it just didn't work. Let me explain a little bit more is that it was working well for the project. We were getting more timely replies to issues and pull requests. More work was getting done more quickly. That part was working well. What wasn't working well was for the maintainer because that half salary that we were paying for half time, about 20 hours a week, that was actually turning into a roadblock for them making that additional money because it was hard to find another half-time job to make the rest of that money. Because if you're going out doing contract work, people wanted more than just 20 hours a week. So he was trying to go and find other open source work to fill that gap, which only shrunk the amount of time that was available for contract work. And so it just became untenable. There wasn't enough money to pay him more. And there wasn't enough time for him to go out and make that additional money. And so ultimately, that was an approach that we abandoned because it just, it wasn't working out. Everybody was getting stressed out about it. And we kind of went back to the drawing board on our approach at that point. So I run multiple contracts part time here and there. And it may or may not work well for me. I've come to the conclusion over time that it may just be a bad idea. I've noticed on your reading list on your website, you've also read Deep Work, where Cal Newport basically says, don't ever try multitasking. It doesn't work. In fact, starting out this podcast, you say, I'm not going to look at the chat because I'm not good at multitasking, which is a bit of honesty. I really appreciate it because I think I'm good at it and I'm horrible at it. I wonder, do you think that was a major part of like why it didn't work well? Because open source leads you to be more distracted or do it just doing part-time. It's just a bad idea in general. Or do you think that someone who may have been better at multitasking may have been able to make this work? I think that it would be hard for anybody because multitasking is hard. And I myself sometimes catch myself bouncing back and forth between different projects. I'm working on ESLint. I'm working on a couple other things on the side. And I have to stop and think, okay, what mode am I in right now? And what do I need to focus on so I can get everything else out of my brain? That is difficult. And at least for me, it leads to more anxiety the more I need to switch around. But fundamentally, the other big problem is just the number of hours in the week. And you'll know if you're primarily doing contract work, that time has a dollar amount tied to it. 
And so any amount of time you're spending not doing some kind of work, you're actually losing money as opposed to having a full-time salary. And that's another layer of stress that I think is really hard is, okay, I got to put in my 20 hours on ESLint this week. I'm going to have to spend some of the rest of that time looking for other contract work and some of the rest of that time doing other contract work. And I think that's another layer of stress that is just really hard to deal with. So I don't think that another person would have been able to make it work outside of us being able to pay like a full-time rate for part-time work, which then would free up the rest of those hours to do other things. What was the next thing you tried? So the next thing that we tried was just a straight per hour rate for team members. And that it was pretty simple. We, As an open source project, we always kind of operated under the idea that the people who put in the most work on the project should get the most benefit from the project. That's how you buy your influence. That's how you buy getting onto the technical steering committee, the TSC. We really wanted it to be a project where the people who contributed the most had the most power and had the most say. And so it seems logical to follow on with that and just say those same people should also be able to make the most money off of it. And we started out at first just paying the TSC members, which worked well. And again, under the thinking that these are the people that we trust to track their hours, they're not going to be making it up as they go along. And from that point, we then started expanding it out to other contributions. So we have basically three layers of the team. The technical steering committee is the highest tier that kind of sets the agenda for the project, manages all of the resources, including the money, and are really the people who are participating the most. And then the next level down is what we call the reviewers, who are the people who have made significant contributions. So the cutoff for that is 50 commits. And those are people who could be on the TSC if they wanted to, but either they don't want to or they don't have enough time to contribute to that, but generally are the elder states people of the project who we can trust to go in and do major features and review pull requests and help out on significant projects. And then there are the committers. The bar for that is 10 commits. So these are people who are typically more new to the project, but have shown enough interest that they've gotten to that commit level. And so what we ended up doing was extending the same per hour rate from the TSC to the reviewers, which at this point is $60 an hour. And then for the committers, we are doing $30 an hour. And that is designed intentionally to entice them to continue contributing to get to that 60-hour level. And so at this point, if you're on the ESLint team, you're getting paid something on a per-hour basis. And that's not just 
for writing code. That's also for reviewing issues and pull requests. That is also for helping answer questions on discussions and in Discord. If you are representing the team by attending a meeting somewhere, it also counts for that. So we have that now for the team members, and that has actually worked out really well so far, is people don't feel like they need to work a certain number of hours, but when they do work, then they are paid for it. So I'm looking at ESLint's repo, ESLint slash ESLint on GitHub, which I know is just one of the repos of the ESLint organization. And there's 837 contributors, 57 contributors, which is a huge amount, but only around 30 of them are committers with more than 10. Are those the members of the organization on GitHub, of which there's also around 30? Yes. Excellent. And so of those, $30 goes towards committers, $60 towards reviewers who have 50 plus commits. Yep. So that's really cool. $60 is still not really a Silicon Valley salary. That's less than the standard rate for hourly work. I'm curious, how do you decide on that number? It was a very unscientific method where at first we looked at what Webpack was doing and they were paying $50 an hour and that's where we started. And then when we got a few more sponsors, we decided that there was enough money that we could bump that up a little bit to $60 an hour. So not a great story, but that's where it came from. That makes a lot of sense. It makes everyone happy. Then let's go with it. How many hours per month are you generally paying out? So we're paying out around $5,000 a month for the team members. So I'm not very good at math, so I'm not even going to try to divide that by 60. That's okay. I mean, 5000 a month works out to $60,000 a year, which again is half of what you get for a San Francisco entry-level developer. So how does the community feel about this? What's the general feedback from people who have been paid? Are they happy with this? The people who have been paid are very happy with this because a lot of them, when they started contributing, they didn't realize that being a member of the team meant being paid. Even though we've talked about it, we've written some blog posts about it, I think it's still surprising to some people when we invite them to join the team and we say, oh, and by the way, we're now going to pay you on an hourly rate. They're usually just thrilled. And at least my feeling in having those discussions is the amount almost doesn't matter at that point because, and those people typically have full-time jobs and are just helping out in their spare time because they're interested in the project. Some people even choose just not to submit invoices because they're like, no, you know what? It's not a lot of money. It doesn't make a big difference to me, but it does make a big difference to the team. So I'm just going to not take the money and that's fine. We certainly don't force people to take money, but the response has been pretty positive. And I think part of it is specifically because there's no one or two people who are taking the majority of the money that's coming in. It really is just based on the amount of work that people are putting in. 
and they know that their work is appreciated that way. And you cap the amount given per month to $1,000 per person, right? No, we actually have no cap at this point. We did start out initially with caps just because we didn't know how much people were working at that point. And we didn't want to promise to pay things that we couldn't. But at this point, we have a pretty good handle on the number of hours people are working. So we don't have any caps on that anymore. So you potentially have people who are working more than five hours a week and getting paid for that work. Exactly. That's awesome. Are you still using Tidelifts at all? We are. That brings in a little bit more. I think at this point, it's about $2,000 a month versus I think we're up to about $13,000 a month through our donations. So it's a small part of what we bring in, but every little bit helps. And does that just go to TSC members or to anyone who works in the project as well? Yeah. So those go to TSC members because of the way Tidelift works. We can't get that money directly into our open collective. There's, I guess, some issues. We've tried to work through it, but we couldn't figure it out. And because whoever receives that money, there are tax implications. We figured that it would be just best to have the TSC split it equally depending on who's on the TSC, we just always split it equally. And then that amount is subtracted from the total amount of hours that TSC members work. So they're not getting double paid for those hours. So I really like this system a lot because it seems to work in general for the community as a whole. And anyone can go through and just try and get more commits into the code base and then eventually get paid for it and feel like they're earning some money. Tell me about swag or stickers or conferences or diversity scholarships. Do you do anything else with the money besides paying contributors? Yeah, we're doing a lot with the money besides paying contributors. The first thing is we have what's called a contributor pool, which is money that we set aside every month to pay non-team members for contributions to ESLint. And those contributions, again, they can be code, they can be helping out on issues and pull requests, they can be helping people on discussions or in Discord. Generally, anything that is of benefit to the project, we will potentially pay you for. And so the way that that works is once a month, the TSC gets together and we review all of the contributions that have been made to the project. And the TSC members nominate people that they've seen made a significant contribution. And again, significant is anything that is of benefit to the project. And that typically means anything that is more than like fixing a typo in the documentation. That kind of falls below the line. But we do, we have people who just help out in Discord all the time. And so we find those people. And we pay them. Usually we just do nice round numbers to make it easy on ourselves, but the minimum is $100. And we've paid as much as $500 to people. Just uh, again, these are people who aren't expecting it at all. You know, they make a big pull request that implements a feature. And I just send them an email and say, hey, the team has decided to pay you 
$500 for that. Here's how you can submit your invoice. And so that has also been a really big hit with the community because again, these are people who most of the time have no idea that they're even eligible to get paid. And then they get an email saying, hey, we decided to pay you some money because we really appreciate what you did. So that has been awesome. Some of the other ways that we've been spending the money, we also set aside $1,500 a month, which is about 10% of what we're bringing in. And we use that to support both our dependencies and other open source projects in the ESLint ecosystem that we think are important. So one of the things that we were looking at in terms of sustainability is we're bringing in a certain amount of money each month. We are building on top of the work of others. And so why shouldn't we be spreading that money to those others? Because without them, ESLint either wouldn't exist or would be a lot harder to maintain. So we started spending some of that money back on other open source projects that we are depending on. So we donate to 11D, which is what we run our website on. We are donating to Sindre Sorhaus, who is really hope I'm saying his name right. Apologies if I'm not. We use a bunch of his open source projects. In ESLint, we have donated to Lint Staged, which I think is a great utility to help you run linting as a pre-commit hook and a bunch of others that I can't remember off the top of my head. But if you go on ESLint's Open Collective page, you can see the projects that we're sponsoring there. And we also are sponsoring again some of our ecosystem projects. So we sponsor TypeScript ESLint, which is a completely separate project run by a completely separate team that adds TypeScript capabilities to ESLint that has become a really important part of the ecosystem. There's also ESLint plugin import that we donate to that just has a ton of rules around how to manage JavaScript modules better. And we're continuing to grow those projects that we donate to because I think that it really is incumbent upon the projects that are able to pull in a decent amount of money to kind of pay it forward, or I guess backward, if you're really thinking about it, to those projects that they are built upon. So we haven't spent a bunch of money on swag at this point. It's something that we're looking at. We really haven't spent too much time looking at conferences we're going to be looking at that as well. But really our focus at this point is really trying to make sure that everybody in the ESLint community is able to benefit from the money we are bringing in, regardless of if they're contributing code, contributing time, or they're just projects that are benefiting the community as a whole or the dependencies that were built upon. This is utterly fascinating to me. I love that you're going up the chain as well as down the stack. I haven't heard of that before. People sponsoring things that are just in the ecosystem at large that are using ESLint. That's a brilliant idea. I really like this at all. And it sounds like you have a really good steering committee that's going through and making some of the hard questions about where we spend things. And your bottom line of does this help is really, really good. 
one of the questions that's going through my head as I'm listening to you is how did you back away from being the benevolent dictator for life? You founded this. And I'm curious, it doesn't sound like there's any ego going on. You're not saying I at all. It's all we, which is excellent. And it's great. I'm just curious how that governance process worked and how do you feel about it? Well, what's interesting is that when I started ESLint, in my mind, this was like a one-year project. At some point, it will be done and it will just exist. And I won't need to do anything with it. And I remember after about 14 months, I was feeling pretty good about it. Like, yeah, yeah, I feel like done is just around the corner. It'll just be a project that can kind of live off on its own. And you know, maybe I'll update it every once in a while, but I can't see it doing much more than it does right now. But it just kept growing. And there were people, and again, this is before we had any sponsorships at all. There were people who were starting to spend a significant amount of their time working on ESLint. And I mean, rivaling the amount of time I was spending on it. And I just kept coming back to what's in it for them. Like right now, they enjoy working on the project. What will make them stick around? And I kept coming back to they need to be able to have some ownership in the project. But that is ultimately what's going to get them to stick around. And I didn't quite know how I wanted to do it. So I started just with baby steps where I introduced, I think, the committer level first, where I was just like, okay, if, if you make 10 commits, then that will buy you some more influence in the project, which looks like you can evaluate issues to see if they are bugs on your own. And I will just trust you that if you say it's a bug, it's a bug and you can fix it and you can merge the pull request for it. And I don't have to be involved. And that worked out really well because it started to take things off of my plate. So I didn't have to review every pull request and I didn't have to review every issue. And that seemed like a good path to continue along. And as I kept going and I got into like year two, I'm now starting to think, you know, I'm not sure how much longer I want to be working on this, but it seems like this project will never be done. And so how can I ensure the future survival of the project outside of me working on it? And that was when I really started looking in earnest at reforming the governance structure so that people could earn more influence over the project and also looking for a way to entice more people to use it. Because at the time, JS Hint was still the dominant JavaScript linter. And there were some things going on with JS Hint that were making people a little bit wary. They were removing some of the style rules and it still had some of the weird license issues that were left over from JS Lint. And so people were kind of looking for an alternative and to say, hey, there's this thing called ES Lint you've never heard of before. People were still a little bit wary about just bringing it into their project. 
And I kept thinking through like, what are the things that would convince me that this would be a project I would want to use? Well, one is that it's not just run by one person. So if that one person decides they don't want to work on it anymore, the project dies because I had seen that happen with other projects. And two was a clean license, which we already had. So I felt like we had a leg up in that realm. And then third was, how could you be sure that the moment you started relying on this project, I, the benevolent dictator, wouldn't decide that I wanted to make money off of the project, change the license, and start trying to charge for its usage or just create it as a product that is sold instead? Those were all the things that were going through my head. So at the same time, I was looking at changing the governance structure. I was also looking at getting ES Lint into the jQuery Foundation at the time, which eventually became the OpenJS Foundation as a way to signal, one, this project is intended to be open source and will always be open source. Two, the project won't die because there is a foundation that is looking after it to make sure that that won't happen. And three, we are committed to building out a governance structure that is going to benefit the community. And also, no company is going to come along and buy ESLint, as like what happened with Node. So going through all of that thought process, going through talking with a bunch of people, it just seemed like if I wanted ESLint to grow into a foundational piece of the JavaScript community, that I was going to have to open it up to the community and take all of these various steps to make it a truly open project that the community can help evolve and maintain without fear of any of those weird pseudo open source tentacle pieces coming in. Excellent, excellent answer. So... I'm curious. I know there's a lot of plans technically for where ESLint will go because otherwise you wouldn't have a TSC anymore. You'd all go home. What are some plans in the future for what you might do with funds to make the project more sustainable? There's definitely a lot that's going on right now. One of the things we've been thinking a lot more about as a TSC is how can we use the money to do things that we know need to get done, but we either know or doubt that the team can do it themselves. And can we use money to solve that problem? And so one of the things that has been on our backlog for probably about three years has been to redesign the website. Because the website hasn't changed fundamentally since the very first version of ESLint came out. And it really is starting to show cracks because we have a lot more documentation than we did when we first started. We never really went back and tried to reorganize the documentation into a better structure. We never went back and tried to reformat the pages so they were easier to read and the most important information was up front. We still get a lot of issues about this wasn't clear from the documentation. 
or I didn't know where to go to find this in the documentation. And so what we recently decided to do was spend some money to redesign the website. So we actually just finished working with a designer on the visual design. And we just hired a developer who is actually going to implement the entire new website for us. And that should hopefully be done by the end of January. Whereas if we left it up to the team working, you know, a few hours here, a few hours there, it could easily take us another year before we got that website done on top of everything else that we want to do. So that's a place where we feel like the money could make a really big positive impact on the project, even by going out and hiring people to do some of the work that we aren't able to do on our own. And once we are able to get the structure of the new website up, we're also going to be looking to actually hire a technical writer to go back through our documentation and really do a deep information architecture audit, come up with how we can better structure the documentation, and then even have them write that new version of the documentation for us so that we know that it's going to be done well and coherently and in a holistic type of way because documentation is one of those things that is just really hard to spend a lot of time on on an open source project when you're in the middle of feature work and when there are bugs coming in and when you're trying to get out a new major release, which we just did a couple of weeks ago. And so those are the areas that we are looking to be spending more of our money going forward. Sounds great to me. Good luck with that. I wish more projects revamped their websites. That's about the time we have today. It's been a fascinating conversation for me. Easily one of the most sustainable open source projects I have ever heard of, given what you've told me, which is just fantastic. Obviously, you can find ESLint at ESLint.org. Where can people find you, Nicholas, on the web? Yeah, you can find my blog at humanwhocodes.com. And you can find me on Twitter. My name is Slicknet. S-L-I-C-K-N-E-T. If that's too hard to find, I also have the Twitter account, Human Who Codes, which links back to my main Twitter account. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now is the part of the show where we move on to something completely different. So this is Spotlight, where we highlight people, projects, or things which we think just need a little bit more light shed on them. My Spotlight today is... Cheekily, Standard is an ESLint add-on or something like it. It's a different project that uses ESLint in some way, which basically says, here's how you should do all of your JavaScript. When I first got started with JavaScript, I was overwhelmed by the amount of things that went on and Standard was an easy implementation that I could just run and it would just say, here's how your code should look. So I know it has a complicated relationship with ESLint, but I really love Standard and Pharos is a fantastic developer and a great person. And so I just want to give spotlight on them if I haven't done so before. Nicholas, what is your spotlight today? Yeah, well, before I get to that, so standard, I think, is best understood as a zero config ESLint alternative. So it's built on top of ESLint, but it doesn't let you configure stuff. So that's why it can be an easier on-ramp 
especially for new developers who don't want to have to think about all of that stuff. But I mean, it's a great project and Feroz is a great person and we're happy to have him participate in the community. So my spotlight is on a project called Release Please. I think you can find it on GitHub under Google APIs slash release dash please. And this is one of those projects that is just sneakily kind of awesome because what it does is uh, you use it as a GitHub action. And if you're using conventional commits, whenever you push a commit to your main branch or you merge a pull request to your main branch, release please will look at it. And if it is a feature, a fix, or anything consequential to a release, it will create a new pull request in your repo that is basically a draft of your next release. And based on your commit messages, it will auto-calculate what that next version will be. So the pull request will come up and say, like, chore colon release version 0.3.0. And then if you push another commit to your main branch, it will update that pull request. It'll generate a change log in the pull request. And so when you're ready to actually publish a release, all you need to do is merge that pull request and it creates a new GitHub release for you. And then in the GitHub action or in the GitHub workflow, you can trigger like your NPM published directly in there. And when you do that, you basically have push button to create a GitHub release, to update your changelog.md file, to increment your release number, and publish your NPM package all without leaving GitHub. And I've transitioned to using that on all of my personal projects, and I just love it. That sounds like something I also would love. Nicholas, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for how ESLint has grown and how it continues to be a sustainable community and how you're actually using the funds that people are giving you. Let us know in the future if we can help out in any way. And thanks again. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. 